You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Take Time for You by Tina Bogren. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing chapter six from the book Take Time for You by Tina Bogren. And that chapter is about self-actualization. But before we get started, we are going to do something a little different, kind of an SLP hot topic. Every once in a while, we are going to be discussing just the issues that are faced by all SLPs, especially SLPs that work with kids, work in schools. So today, Adrian, we are discussing grad school and whether you felt prepared when you entered your career, entered the field of speech pathology after grad school. And I know you have a hot take on this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you get into it. How did you feel when you first started out as an SLP? Okay, well, First of all, I think there are several things that affect how confident you feel when you graduate from grad school. First of all, the quality of your program. Listen, the school that Laura and I went to, we felt, I felt really prepared. Like I felt all the teachers were pretty good. I think one of the biggest factors is the clients that you get when you're in the clinic, which is your first exposure to actual therapy. And then also the type of internship you get specifically in the setting you're going into. I had a great hospital internship. I was in an acute care hospital. I know people that are in grad schools now are really struggling to get medical placements, but I was really lucky to have gotten placed at a great hospital with a great supervisor. So I feel like that was good, but I never really was going to go into a medical setting. I kind of always knew I would go into the schools. So I felt like my school internship was okay. I really liked my supervisor, but I just, it's like you have to have a really great SLP to be teaching you basically the ropes. So I think my weakness I always felt was articulation and I never had an articulation client in the clinic and I really wanted one, but it just like didn't really happen for me. That was just kind of a bummer. So in a way, it was okay because my first setting right out of grad school was pretty much a high school with a little bit of an elementary caseload on the side. And you don't have a lot of articulation to work on at the high school, but that was also really different because my internship took place at an elementary school. So now here I was at a high school and I just did not really feel prepared to be working on these kind of higher level goals. So it was a hard transition for me. And then besides that, I also feel... <laughs> You know, I'm going to put a pause on it, Laura. I'm going to let you talk now because there's one other thing I want to bring up. But mostly I just think the quality of your internships and the clients you have in the clinic really drives and maybe even the quality of your supervisors overall, not just the supervisors that you have in your internships, but also the supervisors you have in your clinic. Yeah. And here's the issue we had at our clinic was we had a professor who was upset about this. There were a lot of clients in our clinic who it was almost as if their parents had had a lot of trouble finding any services for them, weren't happy with what was going on at school. It was, we had like a lot of very severe clients. Do you remember there were some yeah. safety issues in our clinic? And our professor was 
telling us this is not appropriate for a grad school clinic. You guys are not prepared to take on kids that are bigger than you, stronger than you, and have real behavior problems here in our little clinic. And yeah, we kind of did need more. Like I had a little kid working on R. So I did. Do you remember that? I got a bunch of practice working on R. I did have a great school placement. I think I lucked out with all my placements, not to brag. There is this (laughs) massive unfair element to grad school where, where you get placed. Really, I mean, I did my hospital internship the quarter after all of you did. I didn't get one the first quarter, but then I got a really, really good one over the summer right before we graduated. And then a friend of ours who was also doing hers at the same time as me had a nightmare scenario and was just dealing with really, really awful supervisors. And I remember we had another speech therapy student who had a really, really tough school placement. And luckily he went into the medical field instead of He got a great hospital, but his school placement, his supervisor was really, really mean. And how are you supposed to learn? And then, like you said, with the Artic stuff, you do end up with such a huge number of articulation kids when you're in an elementary school. And I think that grad school, it's almost like slippers are more prepared for for Artic. And in grad school, we're learning a lot more about the research behind this and this and this and how to assess and identify the problem. But then the treatment kind of gets left as an afterthought. Right. And luckily now we have social media to learn all these tips and tricks for articulation. You can get the eliciting sounds book and you can teach yourself and you can attend CEUs. So I could see the difference between my slippers and myself in terms of being able to really assess a kid and figure out what should be targeted, but then they were really great at providing the treatment once you told them the target. So I don't know. It's interesting. And that is the other thing I was going to say is like the balance between it's almost like in grad school, it's like, we just want you to have really good foundational knowledge. And there's so much emphasis on Mm -hmm. evidence-based evidence-based. Like we spent so much time literally reading research articles, (laughs) which is good. Like it's good to know why we're doing what we're doing. But then at the end of the day, you're faced with this broad spectrum of things that you need to work on. And I was going to say the same thing. So if you don't get a lot of practical experience with like articulation or maybe even stuttering, you can seek out the information on your own. But honestly, your CF year you are so overwhelmed that there's no way you're going to be researching what people are really doing. And I just think it's also really rare to even know what speech therapy looks like. The only way you, the only time you like literally see somebody else doing it is when you're observing in your school clinic, which who are you observing? Other students (laughs) who also don't know what they're doing or your internship. And then you just have to cross your fingers and hope that that person is showing you a good foundation. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, it's interesting. It's kind of trial by fire. You have to go in there. But something else that I wanted to say is I think there's also a disconnect at the master's level of who are these professors? They're people who've chosen to go into teaching, but they don't have a lot of on the ground experience. So like Laura, let's think about our stuttering class that we took. The techniques that they Mm -hmm. told us of how to remediate a stutter was really intricate, a really long program, Oh, something that actually you would never really use in the schools because 
nobody has time for that. Maybe if you have a clinic that specializes in stuttering, you're going to have the time to be able to really put an intricate plan into place. But really, you're flying by the seat of your pants talking just about basic strategies using something you got off Teachers Pay Teachers. And uh, the majority of these teachers don't even know what Teachers Pay Teachers is like professors, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So what I did like about our clinic was our main professors were not as involved in the clinic supervision. They really did get supervisors kind of pulled from all over. So I know I had a supervisor who was five, had graduated from the program five years before us and was working in the school district I ended up in. And, you know, I do think that they try to fill the clinic with supervisors who are working in the field, providing therapy at that time. Some are retired, but a lot of them, and I've heard since we left that that's the case. There's a lot of really great supervisors in the clinic who are really in the trenches. So that's a good place to learn. If you're lucky enough to get the good ones again, yeah, <laughs> you know, and then even then, once you're That's in true. more advanced clinic, those supervisors aren't demonstrating a lot for you. They're just talking with you about what you're doing. So it's really on you to come up with all the therapy. And oh, my gosh, if I could go back and watch some of the videos of me doing therapy, I would probably die. I know. some of the stuff I was doing was so weird. <laughs> but, you know, Laura, I always remember <laughs> you putting a lot of effort into your activities And I thought that was really great. But you talking about the severity of the clients in the clinic, like really unlocked some memories that I have not thought about in a while, just about kids who were not really progressing on goals because they were really severe. And you're sitting here like they're recycling these clients through each student. And you're just like, what can I do that's different? You know, it's just, it's really complicated. And I don't even know if that's the best setting for them. Yeah. When you have your feet under you and you're confident enough, then you can go forward and specialize, yeah. you know, but it takes a while. And I remember lots of scary IEP meetings, just feeling like, why are you all looking at me? Like I'm the professional. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of imposter syndrome those first couple of years. Yeah. It didn't take yeah. me long to feel really appreciative of the program that we came from because I was at schools that either were uncovered or were covered by retired SLPs. If I could show you some of the reports that I read from previous years, it was wild. The typos, all the names being wrong, you know, like just just so rushed and no thought put into it. The goals were just every goal was the same and so general, not specific at all. Yeah. I very early on had administrators telling me you're the best SLP we've ever had and I was like it's my first year (laughs) just because our program had stressed so much the importance of a really thorough assessment and you know I was never going to write a sloppy short report that wasn't really specific about that child and we just we were given those foundational skills and those did translate and I'm sure that you were the best SLP too that a lot of your schools had ever had. So, oh, well, thanks. As with everything, it's like experience is the best teacher. So that's where you learn what works and what doesn't. Yep. Okay. So our conclusion was that we were prepared, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> In some areas, yes. In others, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. After the break, we're going to discuss chapter six, self-actualization.
The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP book club. All right, we are back and we're discussing self-actualization needs. So Maslow's definition of people who are self-actualized is that they have superior reality perception. So they accurately judge other people, accept uncertainty and ambiguity. They're more tolerant of themselves and others, have greater appreciation and complex emotional reactions, increased identification with others, increased creativity, and a higher frequency of peak experiences. So peak experiences are moments in life where everything is perfect. Those moments where you're really just caught up in the moment, time seems to stop, everything falls into place. And Maslow asked people in a study to list all the best moments in their life and describe how they felt in those moments and what made them different. So Tina encourages us to answer those questions ourselves. Think about moments in your life that were the happiest, that stand out to you the most, that you would consider a peak moment, and how did you feel, and what was different about them, and be really specific in your answers. So when you're in the midst of a peak moment, you're temporarily a self-actualizer. Even if you don't have a stable first couple of rungs of the ladder, you can be a self-actualized person in peak moments. You probably clearly perceive reality, fully accept yourself and those around you, and feel immense gratitude and appreciation for the moment. These experiences can occur if you change views of yourself in a healthy direction, you change views of other people, you have a changed worldview, you're more creative, spontaneous, expressive, and if you feel that life in general is worthwhile, even if it's usually kind of drab, pedestrian, or ungratifying. Tina believes that we can have more peak experiences if we feel life is worthwhile, see ourselves and others in a positive light, and fully express ourselves. So you have to first, as this book suggests, make those lower rungs as stable as possible. So take care of your physiological needs, your safety needs, your belonging and esteem, and then you can get to this place where you can have a lot of peak moments and you can get into a state of flow. So we hear this a lot a lot lately flow state everybody wants to get in a flow state that's when you're so deeply engaged in an activity that everything around you disappears and you lose track of time tina gets into flow when she's writing so these are just moments where you're really present content calm happy focused you have full concentration you have clear goals in mind time could speed up or slow down And the experience is a reward in itself. It's effortless and easy for you. You're not self-conscious about things and you feel in control. So Laura, what are some times in your life where you feel like you're in the flow state? I think that for me, it was when I started 
making speech therapy materials for my TPT store or making boom cards. So I started making materials back when the pandemic hit. Like a lot of people, I needed digital materials and I was like, I'm just going to start making these. So those are the first products I made were my boom cards. I don't know if it's a flow state or it's just that I was so stressed about my work that I would rather be doing anything else (laughs) to distract me. And it made me happy to do that. So I could sit for hours and hours and hours on end and feel totally happy designing a boom card deck or a product that I'm really excited about, especially when you first get an idea for a product and you start putting it together. It's just hours can pass and you're like, what (laughs) What happened? So I think that that's it for me. I know there have been other times, but that's what comes to mind when I think about it. What about for you? I think, well, when I read, for sure, hours can pass and I can get really in the zone, which is interesting because I know normally flow states are associated with being creative. And when I'm reading, I don't know if I'm necessarily creating, but I guess you are visualizing. So I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, when you're reading a really good book where when you put it down, you're longing to be back in that world, you know, like you can't, you're like, I know I need to make dinner, but I just want to (laughs) read. That's got to be the same. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that is one. And then also when I write, since I was working on a novel late last year, and that was another example of when you really get in the flow, hours can pass and you're just so absorbed in what you're doing. Yeah. That's kind of what I wanted to talk about because Tina says you should ask yourself, when do you experience flow? Record those moments and try to find similarities. What common characteristics do they have? And her first strategy for, you know, the strategies she has in this chapter are really just trying to get you into flow state. I mean, clearly Tina loves being in a state of flow. She's a writer, but that's what I was wondering. She says to choose work you love, whether it's part of your career or something you do on the side. And I wanted to talk about what this means for SLPs. What if you're an SLP and you do love working with the kids, but you kind of hate all the other parts of the job? What if you don't like writing the notes and writing the reports and you can't really get into this state when you're working? You know, when you're doing therapy, like when you're working with the kids. Yeah, because I'm like, you know, sometimes I think it's like just a magical moment, right? Some sessions are like you're watching the clock, especially if there's like some behavior going on. It's like, okay, but some days I feel like would zoom by so fast because I was just seeing group after group after group. Maybe we were having great discussions, having a lot of fun. Kids were doing great. There's nothing like that feeling where a kid is just getting all the cues right for a sound and they're just nailing it. You're like so proud of them. That's true. I've never felt that, oh, I'm so taken out of this world having such a good time. But, you know, there are certain sessions where it's like everything comes together and it just feels not like work, but, you know, something different. That does happen. You're right. You do. In the clinic, we were Mm -hmm. talking about grad school. In the clinic at grad school, I would be watching that clock because those sessions were 50 minutes. Do you remember And if you're 50 minutes one-on-one with an Arctic kid for R, ooh, that was a lot. So yeah, yeah. but now 45 minutes could go like that. Another strategy that Tina suggests is to choose an important task to do that you love, but the challenges you takes time and is achievable. And I think that that could be anything at home, finding something that you enjoy doing or, or a little project you could work on at home. 
find your best time of day. Mine is the morning. I just start super fresh and gradually shrivel up and fade (laughs) as the day goes on. When's the best time for you? I'm more of a night owl than a morning person. So really, I it takes me a while to get going in the morning. So I kind of I like to be productive sort of in the like evening. When I worked in the schools, I realized that I'm so fresh in the morning. So on top of stuff, that's when I needed to be writing reports, writing up documentation, doing the stuff that really took a lot of brain power and then save things that were more mindless like cutting and laminating products that I needed to use with my students next day or just setting up, getting out the games or activities that I was going to use the next day in therapy, all that stuff that doesn't take a lot of attention, you know. So you got to structure your day, right? So she says, remove distractions like your phone, your tablet, your computer, your TV when you're trying to get things done. Train yourself to stay focused on a particular task for an extended period of time and keep practicing these strategies because they take time. When I finished reading this chapter, I kind of felt like all the strategies were just aimed at achieving flow state. So I wanted to read up more. I did a little bit of outside reading. I read an article on self-actualization and they provided some other information that I kind of liked. So they said, it's important to know what it's not. It's not perfection or everything going smoothly. You can be self-actualized and still face difficulties. It's important Mm -hmm. to recognize your limits while focusing on your strengths. And some strategies that they suggested were practice acceptance. So when things don't go your way, accept that other people's behavior, be more accepting of that. That's a big one when we work in the schools. Be more spontaneous. That's one that's really hard for me. I'm the least spontaneous person. I like things to be very routine, the same. But they said to take chances and be open to trying new things. Get comfortable being alone and having a lot of me time. I have no problem with that. (laughs) I love being (laughs) alone. Appreciate the small things in life. I have a neighbor who is a little different. His house is a little, it's got like a Grey Gardens vibe to it. It's real disheveled, a very wild garden, big old house. And I've seen him out in his yard kind of like doing either Tai Chi or yoga. The other day I was walking my dogs right by him. I swear I could have reached out and touched him. But he was unaware of me because he was closing his eyes and smelling a rose, a big, like this rose bush had one big, beautiful rose that had bloomed and he was just so wrapped up in it. So either he was taking some hallucinogens (laughs) or or just a totally self-actualized person taking a moment to enjoy something beautiful. It was so At first, I was alarmed. And then I was like, wow, how wonderful to just be out in your yard smelling a rose. We should all strive to be that way. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And then live authentically. So that's what my neighbor's doing. Don't worry so much about what other people think about you. Take steps to develop compassion. So try to consume media that's written by people from different cultures from your own or do some volunteer work or explore ways to improve your community. And then finally, talk to a therapist. That can just be so helpful. Yeah. And then take all these strategies, create your own plan, just like we do at the end of every chapter. Circle any strategies that look really good to you. 
then narrow it down to which ones you can do and create a plan. What days of the week are you going to use those strategies and then track it for seven days. And at the end of the seven days, come back and reflect on how it made you feel and the impact that it ended up having. And that is it. If you want to be a self-actualized person, I want it so bad. (laughs) We should all strive. (laughs) But I think we're going to keep trying to implement all of these strategies. And at the end, in two episodes, in our conclusion, we're going to wrap up and see how we're doing. I want to carry it forward and do my best to implement some self-care moving forward, not just for this month while we read this book, but always, you know. Same. It's been really inspiring for me too to kind of reevaluate things and figure out what I can tweak. So yeah, we'll report in two weeks. Tell everyone how it's going. All right. Okay. So that will wrap it up for this episode. That was chapter six of Take Time for You. We'll see you next time when we're discussing chapter seven, Transcendence. I can't wait for that one. (laughs) All right. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.